0: The views and opinions expressed on Eye on the Triangle do not represent WKNC or NC State student media. Your dial is currently tuned into Eye on the Triangle here on WKNC eighty-eight point one FM HD One Raleigh. Hello everyone, this is Brian Juredo, the Public Affairs Director here at WKNC and host of Eye on the Triangle. We've got two interviews for today's episode. To start us off, Maha will be interviewing Patrick from Hinhook in Durham, and they talk about blends with friends. And for our second interview, Eye on the Triangle sits down with Laura Casas, a potter and illustrator working out of downtown Raleigh. So stay tuned.
1: Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1 FM. Catch our show every Sunday from 6 to 7 p.m. on HD1. I'm here with Patrick from Pinhook representing Tree City, who is here to talk about a very exciting opportunity. Hey, babe, how are you? Please introduce yourself.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm Patrick, also known as Tree City, and I'm a producer and DJ based in Durham. I've been working out of the Triangle for the last decade plus and uh yeah i also help organize a biweekly open decks event at the pinhook in durham
1: um uh, patrick define what blends with friends is using your own
2: words i think the simplest way that i explain it to people is it's an open decks so if you're familiar with like the concept of an open mic at a bar where people can come and perform it's like that for djs and producers So the Pinhook has a really great sounding sound system and room. Um, And so every other week, or the first and third Wednesdays of the month, we provide a free opportunity for people to come and just DJ in front of other people. It's really low pressure. It's not like a super intense club night with like a million people and lasers and whatnot. It's really kind of just a a weeknight hangout kind of vibe. Um, A
1: jam sesh
2: yeah exactly um and providing people an opportunity to play around on like professional quality equipment and you know maybe get into djing if they haven't done it before but have always been curious about it or you know for people who have been doing it for a while it's like an opportunity to try out new stuff maybe get a little weirder with your set than you necessarily would at like a official kind of gig
1: experimental cool cool How does Blends with Friends create an inclusive space for artists and people who just want to make music?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's something that we have talked about a lot, like how to make it as accessible as possible, inclusive as possible. Um, A big part of that is that it's free, so there's no like economic barrier to entry. The Pinhook itself is like a really rad and inclusive space in Durham you know it's been like queer owned for its entire existence and really focuses on creating like a safer kind of venue club environment i feel very fortunate to have you know been able to throw shows there for i think they opened in 2009 so yeah a little over 10 years and you know we have a staff of volunteers basically who run the vent. um we bring what we call the synth petting zoo, which is a bunch of synthesizers that you know various people own that we set up that you can just jam on. Um, is
1: that at Blatzoff? Friends, you're
2: saying? Yeah, yeah, we do that kind Whoa. of
1: like
2: off to the <laughs> side. Yeah, so there's like the main kind of DJ setup is on stage. Um, we have CDJs and a mixer as well as turntables, and people can plug in uh, like an aux cord to their phone or laptop or controller or whatever. So. We really try to make it so, like, if anyone walks in off the street and wants to make some noise, like, we're going to have some means for them to do that, even if it's just, like, let me play my new track off of my phone.
1: That is so cool. That's so awesome. I love that so much. That's that's very – the way you worded it just really attracts me to it. It sounds exactly like something I'd want to do on a Wednesday. That's great. it was something i'd look forward to my next question for you is what kind of artists and mentors attend blends with friends as i've read about on the website
2: yeah it's a really interesting mix because there's you know everything from people who don't actually even know what the event is and just like come in because it's a bar on a wednesday and maybe are like oh this is interesting like i'm kind of into this kind of music Um, All the way to, you know, there's like a good few regulars who are like gigging DJs and producers and are like doing the thing, you know, like professionally um, and everywhere in between. So it's a really cool opportunity um, for people of like different skill levels and different experience levels to interact. Um, And because it's like really low pressure and low stakes like you know pretty often people are able to make connections with like people that share musical tastes or you know like someone might come and be like oh i saw this one person do like a modular set and i'm really into that but i haven't been able to connect with people locally who are also into that so it's really it's really just trying to create an opportunity for like-minded people to come together and like share what they know and just you know enjoy the music and vibe out together
1: yeah like like a family like a friend group like a like a gay and inclusive ymca of djs
2: (laughs) yes exactly i'm gonna steal that for our uh Um, go
1: ahead (laughs) go ahead (laughs) um yeah i think that Like for me personally, as someone who is interested in making music or just experimenting with my sound through different mediums and stuff, all of this is like phenomenal information and makes me feel very welcome just to meet you and talk about this because I think it has like potential to use a platform to bring so many people together who are willing to help one another. And I think that that's that's a community thing. I would say Blends with Friends is a community thing.
2: Yeah, it's definitely one of the main goals is to like build and reinforce, you know, the community that's already here, kind of strengthen those connections, and also, you know, provide resources. Like I think it's pretty hard sometimes for people who are just starting out and are maybe like only making music in their bedroom to have a sense of how they fit into like the scene or like the larger conversation. Um, so yeah that's definitely one of our goals and i mean we've also kind of in the process of doing it connected with other folks around the state who are doing similar stuff so like in raleigh miss ashley runs an open decks night at uh, clockwork and we're collaborating next month and doing sort of a a crossover event um i want to say that's on the sixth they do it on tuesdays um Oh, sorry, that's the 8th of November. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's, like, this thing called Patch and Brew that's in Greensboro um, that has a little bit more of a focus on, like, synthesizers and various, you know, like, modular companies will come out and, like, share their stuff. But it's a really similar kind of, like, you know, growing the community and sharing knowledge kind of thing. So one thing that's been very cool about, you know, seeing this event grow is that, Like, there are a lot of other people who are on the same page, you know, around the state and beyond, and, like, we all get a chance to link up and kind of share notes and, like, talk about, you know, what we're trying to do.
1: So, um, something I'm interested in, first of all, do you know that Instagram account, Animals with Synthesizers?
2: No, but I'm immediately following it.
1: Do it when you say synthesizer, it just automatically like triggers my brain into remembering animals with synthesizers. It's synthesizers playing over like animals just being animals, and I love it. I live for it. I'll send it to you on Instagram. It is thank you, yeah. And another thing I was actually going to ask about so you said that there is clockwork. Uh, can you tell me more about that? I've never heard of that.
2: Yeah, clockwork is a bar in Raleigh, I believe, and um miss ashley is a a friend and a dj who organizes an open decks night there i want to say it's every tuesday it's definitely on tuesdays um and they have you know like dj decks set up you can sign up online in advance and come out and play a set i think it's mostly kind of like house music centric whereas like blends with friends we really don't it's eclectic we don't tell people what to play at all and that kind of like for better or for worse like it gets really weird sometimes because people will come through and play like just stuff you would never expect like stuff that's not even dance music like someone did like a 90s alternative rock set the other week um, okay
1: cool i mean i love that that diversity i love the eclecticness that sounds amazing what kinds of learning opportunities are available for people who attend blends with friends like you mentioned the synthesizers before and the dj equipment and setup do you have any more goodies and resources that are brought into blends with friends
2: yeah so there are a few other things that we do sometimes we'll do workshops at the beginning of the night for people who are unfamiliar with djing on cdjs and that's kind of like the industry standards like club DJ controller like you would find if you went into pretty much any club anywhere in the world. Um but they're pretty intimidating, I think, particularly to people who are starting out. They're like huge and have an unnecessary number of buttons and knobs. So How many buttons, Patrick. Oh, at least 10. <laughs> um so sometimes we'll do like a little workshop at the beginning of the night and just kind of get people acquainted with the basics of you know, how to DJ, like how to get two tracks to blend, you know, changing tempos and things like that. Um, we also have a program that we call the Gear Library, which is all donated equipment that um, you know, generally it's like people are cleaning out their studio and they're like, oh, I don't use this controller anymore. Don't really want to deal with selling it. And so they'll they'll donate it to Gear Library. And that's, you know, it much like a library, it's free to check stuff out. Um, There's a variety of things from MIDI controllers to mixers to, you know, like, big Yamaha keyboards, you know, when you're, like, learning to play piano at home. Um, And so that's just kind of in keeping with the idea of, like, getting people resources for free um, so that people can see, like, oh, I've been always curious about DJing, but... I don't want to spend a couple hundred dollars on a dj controller if i don't really know like what i'm doing so it's opportunity to test stuff out or practice or you know just get some hands-on experience
1: yeah thank you and how can people find out more about upcoming blends with friends now you mentioned that they're every first and third wednesday i believe
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, Every first and third Wednesday at the Pinhook in Durham, uh, we also have an Instagram that you can follow that's blends underscore with underscore friends. Um, Nice. We don't currently have a website. You know, like I said, it's like very DIY and volunteer run. So a lot of the like infrastructure and stuff we're still kind of putting together. Um, But definitely following the Instagram. Um, is the best way to keep updated about events. And also if you go to the hooks website, um, we're on there as well under their upcoming events.
1: Thank you. Very helpful. So these are free, free and very public events, correct?
2: Yeah, that's right. I think there's, uh, like if you're under 21, you know, they'll X your hands because it's a bar, but mm-hmm. there's no cover charge to get in. Um, It's really designed to be literally anyone can just walk in off the street and sign up and play a DJ set.
1: And I wanted to know, do you have any words of encouragement or stories of encouragement that can get people to come out to Blends with Friends?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the things that's been most like inspiring for me um, as an organizer of the event is... Like seeing that the idea actually works, like when people have access to tools and community, they really blossom and start doing their own stuff. So, like, one of the coolest things I've seen is people who started coming to Blends with friends and either were just starting out as DJs or maybe hadn't even started and were just curious about it and are now like throwing their own shows and like you know opening for big artists and kind of building their own events um which is really like the thing that excites me the most you know like some of my favorite you know djs in the triangle are people who you know uh, a year ago started coming out to blends with friends and were like you know i want to play i dj at home a lot but like i just don't want to jump into getting in front of a ton of people um and so i think it's really important for like a healthy like ecosystem of artists to have just a lot of small opportunities i try to tell people who are like nervous about playing their first set or whatever like it doesn't really matter if you mess up no one's gonna boo you probably no one's gonna stop dancing like and it's very common that like over the course of the night like you know there's like a weird blend or transition or something or like the equipment will stop working but it's kind of just it's almost more of like you know just like a friend party cookout kind of vibe where no one's like oh where'd the music go it's just like oh okay we'll we'll hang out until it comes back and then everyone applauds and like so that's that's really nice
1: that. Yeah, that's really um, amazing. Is there a specific shout out to any artist or DJ that you can think of that inspired you, or has made it big, or that you have mentored through this program?
2: Yeah, I mean, shout outs are tricky because there's so there's so many people that come out that I like off the top of my head. You know, like people that have been coming out a ton, like uh, Isabel Essence, Lumina XC. Smut, Vespertine, Vare, like I I really could go on for probably about 15 minutes. Um, <laughs> but I what I what I will tell people is particularly people who are interested in getting more connected into what's happening in electronic music in the triangle, is just like come to a couple because you'll definitely meet new people. I mean, I'm continually finding new favorite DJs, like um and finding new tracks that I haven't heard of and you know, like whole whole genres where someone comes through, like, you know, like this uh this one artist Chris Crisp came through and played like the most high energy trance set at like nine PM and Love like, we like everyone was just you know raving super hard. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's I mean it really is like just so many people. Like I ha I save all the sign up lists of you know, folks that have come through. We have a physical like clipboard where you sign up for a time slot. Um, and yeah, I mean, just like folks like Job and Miss Beats and like Trandall. I mean, a lot of the uh, people that come through generally end up getting booked either on, you know, other shows, other events that that we're promoting or it's almost kind of like a A and R like scouting opportunity thing. Like promoters yeah. will come through and be like, okay, let me see, you know, who are like the new people that are coming onto the scene, like who's doing some interesting stuff. And there always is it's always, you know, just like full of surprises. Like it it from week to week, it's never the same event twice. And so that like to me always keeps it exciting and engaging.
1: Well, it's been an honor talking with you, and I really appreciate everything, and thank you so much.
0: Hey everyone, this is Brian Hurado, the Public Affairs Director of WKNC and host of Eye on the Triangle, and today I'm joined with Laura Casas. Uh, she's a potter and illustrator working out of a studio here in downtown Raleigh, if you just want to introduce yourself.
3: Sure, uh, my name is Lara Casas, and I'm a potter, illustrator, and uh, Brian said the whole thing, um, yeah.
0: <laughs> so overall, my first question is going to be, what inspired you to do pottery? I, you've had kind of a lengthy uh, resume, just based off my own research, just kind of what brought you to like first starting it out.
3: Yeah, it's, um, pottery is something I definitely did not see myself doing, Um, when I was in high school my idea of art or going to art school was kind of in the genres of like animation illustration children's books that's kind of what I was thinking and then you know um, also I thought when it came to fine arts I was you know in my head it was photography painting um, and only that Um, clay didn't really register with me Um, in my high school we had like one week of clay and I hated it mainly because it was one week and you can't really get a lot done in one week or you can't really get the full experience of clay in one week but so I kind of I went to school to Western Carolina University originally thinking I was going to do art education or music education tried out for their band and everything i thought that was going to be my path was music performance that type of thing or art education i wasn't really for sure i don't think anyone any freshman's for sure about what they want to do later i i think it was my the end of my first year i had saved ceramics for last because it was, it was something that was a medium that i was really dreading mainly one the instructor seemed really intimidating. (laughs) Um, And two, it was very messy. And I was like, I am not looking forward to this. I am not, because I was seeing the people who were leaving the classes and they were covered head to toe in like clay, essentially. And I was like, I do not, I am not into that. But I took the class and it was like an instant thing. It was like almost instant that I, um, I saw the instructor. I learned that the instructor's the fact that she was so intimidating was because she just exuded passion for it. And I realized I wanted to be like that and I wanted to be like her. And I was like, maybe clay is what's going to get me to feel like that. Um, and so it was, I really attest my, you know, journey to clay, to her, Heather May Erickson. I fondly (laughs) refer to her as my clay mom, Uh, because she was a um, or she is a really great mentor and still actively um, is a really great mentor that I am always referring to but yeah in college is when I found um, ceramics and she program at Western um, was really small so she was able to put a lot of focus on the three students that were (laughs) majoring or you know concentrating in ceramics we did a lot of, we did a lot of shows together. So I got a lot of experience while I was in college doing markets and shows. Um, and she kind of introduced the idea to me that you don't have to be a starving artist. Like you can have a, a pretty um, like a robust career in art, um, but it's through different avenues. So I don't just make art. Yeah, so yeah, I don't don't just make art. Um, I do a bunch of different things like education, freelance illustration, um, just anything I can get my hands into.
0: And just in general, in terms of just your art and ceramics as a whole, what did you do to kind of develop this skill, or was it just something that you've kind of gathered at at a young age and just developed over time, or was there a process that you took to kind of be able to keep growing?
3: I would say... The art process. I think when I was younger, I knew that I wanted to be in a creative field, um, for sure. Um, I think when I got into high school, I was intimidated by a lot of things when I was in high school, and when I think back, the idea of being a fine artist or going to art school solely was really intimidating. Mainly because, I guess you technically could say I'm first generation Mexican-American, because... I was born in Mexico and I grew up here in America, but it, I don't really feel that way sometimes. Yeah. I don't really feel that way sometimes <laughs> cause I'm like, wait, my first day, cause my, my dad is fluent in Spanish. Um, but I'm not fluent in Spanish. I barely can speak Spanish unless it's like a life or death situation. <laughs> um, but anyway, my art now is, um, inspired by a lot of nostalgic cartoons, that type of thing. Um, you know, I grew up in the early two thousands with old Nickelodeon and old Cartoon Network and that type of thing. And those types of animations, very graphic, very colorful, very each style, each art style was completely different depending on the network, you know, um, and also children's books. I always have a lot of those images in my head when I'm making art. And so, you know, thinking about those, that's what made me think, oh, I want to be a children's book illustrator when I was younger. I was like, that's what I want to be. But because of, you know, these outside suppressors and like, you know, parents, teachers saying that art school isn't a, you know, sustainable career path. Um, I kind of suppressed that a little bit, and I was like, okay. Fine, I'm going to arts, sc- art school for art education, but you know, I didn't. I kind of only worked in my sketchbook for me. Everything else that I created externally, like for assignments, were for assignments. So it was to please professors. It was to please other people, and so I would say, once I got into clay. I realized two things. I realized that clay was almost genetic for me. After I, I had done a lot of research on clay and the history of clay in Mexico, and I was like, it all like came together for me. And I said, wow, like, this is, this is who I am. This is, you know, it, it came very natural to me. And I, I finally understood why. Um, and so I was able to merge you know, that, that part of myself, and also that childlike creativity in my work. And so I started experimenting with illustrations on pottery, and so kind of melding those two worlds together. Um, And so I'm still kind of doing that now. My work in college was more comic-like based, so I would do things in frames and have a very direct narrative, but now the messages and the narratives are more subtle. Um, I've actually just very recently started experimenting back with the very direct comic book-like squares on my pieces to make the narrative more direct, but I always keep falling back to that, like very, subtle, me- like stories and messages and things like that in my work.
0: Like you said earlier, there's been a lot of like uh, Mexican American influence in your work. I think that's what actually personally drew me to your work a lot. I d- discovered you through uh, reshare on Instagram. And after that I kind of clicked and I was able to like scroll through and I really thought your illustrative patterns and illustrations that you draw in your work is incredible. But also I thought it was very incredible how you use like red clay And I saw on an interview that you did earlier this year for Walter Magazine that you say that a lot of the pottery that you do connects to Mexico and a lot of that Mexican heritage that you have. In terms of bringing that like heritage, how do you represent that in your art?
3: I would say, so when I first started out, I was using a lot of meallica, because that was kind of in my first initial research that I had done. I had learned that mayalica, which is a type of glaze, is, was really popular in the making of talavera towels in Southern Mexico. And also in general, in all of, uh, Mexican pottery, that bright, you know, graphic mayalica colors are widely used. Although back in the, you know, sixties and beyond, it was all lead-based. <laughs> but now there's better recipes out there. Um, uh, that are no longer lead-based. I still use Mayalica, although I have, you know, as I began to research more and educated myself more about my own history and even the indigenous history of Mexico, not my own, you know, acknowledging those um, indigenous communities later realized, you know, oh, the reason why the traditional Mexican potters use maialica is because it was introduced by the Spaniards and Spanish. So, you know, because I think maialica is kind of Italian or Spanish, and it was used in a lot in in Europe and brought to the Americas. Um, and I was like, and I, for a while I thought about stop, you know, I I thought I was going to stop using maialica because I, it felt, you know, after that initial research, it felt really weird, but then I realized I was like, you know, I'm from North Mexico, and none of my indigenous history is, like, intact anymore. Despite all the research I could do, I couldn't find any, you know, talking to my parents, talking to, like, my grandparents. They had no knowledge of, you know, they have no knowledge of their grandparents or their past relatives because none of it was kept either that or destroyed. So I was like, well, I've got Spanish in me. It's, you know, it is what it is. I can't, I can't fight it. So, um, so I was like, I'll just keep using it. Like it's who I am. And, and through those subtle ways, you know, I am in the pot. Um, but you know, I do keep like the, the pinching, I, I pinch all of my work. I try to do everything with as little tools as possible, and just relying on myself and my fingers and things like that, and kind of really simplifying it. So yeah, the red clay, I try to keep to the red clay, the pinching aspect, and the maialica. Um, although as unsettling it is, it's still a part of who I am, I guess, and my pottery as well.
0: Beyond just like the Mexican heritage and the cartoons that you've watched growing up, is there any other influences that you say are represented through your work?
3: I would definitely say um, music has a really big play on on how I'm feeling. I definitely go through, go through like different, each season I feel like I have a different fixation or like different genre of, of music that I listen to. Like my partner is always making fun of me cause he's like, oh, it's September. She's in her modest mouse phase or whatever, because I'll end up listening to the modest Mo- modest mouse album for like the whole month of September or things like that. And so, you know, if I'm feeling like really that, I'm feeling that day. So, um, I think I actually had, I had someone ask me this. But in a different way. Um, They asked me what genre of music my pots would be, and I think I told them bubble grunge, (laughs) essentially. (laughs) Like, I feel like my work is... it's trying to hide... the emotion it's conveying is trying to hide like that emo scene kid that's inside of me. It's trying to peek through. Um, so although my work is, like, super colorful and super, like, optimistic, I still, find, I still find ways to, like, put a little bit of angst in there every now and then. So that's, that's how I think about it.
0: <laughs> that's so greatly put. I enjoy the angst that comes out of your work every <laughs> once in a while as well. Uh, beyond making your own work, you also teach in-person classes at the Pullen Arts Center. Uh, how do you go about teaching others or inspiring others?
3: Um, I definitely think it goes back to my mentor, Heather May Erickson, um, you know, she's the one, I, I, I think about this a lot, because, uh, right after I started taking pottery classes, my partner took pottery classes, um, but not with Heather May, but with a grad student, no hate the grad students and their teaching methods but he he was like I just don't feel it you know you know the instructor they didn't quite have the spark that you're talking about and I think about that comment a lot and I'm like what you know if I'm having a bad week or a bad you know time I try when I'm teaching I try to shut that out because what if that You know, what if this session is what, you know, this session with me in my class is what allows someone to find, you know, their passion and that kind of thing. So I never want to, I always want to, I always want my classes to be really positive and welcoming and all around, yeah, I just want them to know that I'm really excited about clay (laughs) and that they should be too, um, even like I teach a lot of beginning classes. And this is, like, such a common theme, I, every single class, no, like, no question, there's always one person, or more than one person, who tries to perfect it on the first night. And I'm like, I, I put a disclaimer at the beginning of the class and throughout the class, it's like, you are not gonna be perfect at this on the first class. Like, I've been doing this since 2016, and I'm still, like, learning, you know, learning everything I can about it. So yeah, um, just trying to dispel people's perfectionism when I'm teaching, um, and, and when I'm teaching, trying to get folks to loosen up and experiment more and take risks, that kind of thing. Because that's what clay is, really. It's got a mind of its own, and so it's good for experimenting
0: uh do you have any tips for somebody that's like interested in pursuing it
3: i would say start off with hand building when i do have the chance to teach to teach to um or to teach a class where i'm able to do hand building and wheel throwing so a combination wheel and hand building class i always start with hand building because you got to think when pottery was first being made they didn't start off with a wheel they start off they started off with their hands so I always like to start with the very basics because the basics inform, you know, more advanced techniques. Like the pinching of a pot. When you're pinching a pot from a ball of clay, you know, you're rotating it in a circle, but in your hand. And you know, you're pinching up the walls layer by layer in your hand. And, you know, this is the same concept for wheel throwing, except instead of in your hand and almost horizontal, it's vertical and spinning really fast on a wheel, definitely take it slow and try hand building first. If you go into wheel throwing first, like beginning wheel first though, just go into it the idea that you're not going to get it on the first night. Really the first night or the first day of a beginning wheel class is really just so you can get the feel of the clay like because you've never been on. you know if you're taking beginning class chances are you've never touched a wheel or like never felt the experience of the clay flying everywhere like that kind of thing so you know the first night you're not going to be perfect Um, but you know by the fourth or fifth session you might have you might have made something that doesn't fall apart (laughs) so yeah
0: great and uh, would you say that teaching in person courses at the Pulling Center or just creating amongst others has inspired your own personal creativity?
3: Oh, for sure. I would say teaching in particularly makes me look at my own work, not not necessarily more critically, but in a different light. Because you're talking about it so much and you're and you're you're having the I don't know, do the schools still do this, that where you have to like present your work, you know? Mm-hmm. And presenting the work or presenting, like, your knowledge of the topic helps you kind of fortify that in your mind a little easier. So teaching has definitely made me um, more aware of what I'm doing and even be more cautious about how I'm doing things now. Like, I don't know a good example off the top of my head, but I'm definitely, basically, I'm trying to do more practice practice what you preach essentially (laughs) I'm like yeah I should probably you know this is how you should do it I should probably start doing it like this too (laughs) like that kind of thing
0: (laughs) and you sell a lot of your work through your own personal website as well as just craft fairs throughout the area Uh, had that always been a goal for you to sell like a lot of your illustrations or just your art in general
3: yeah I would say going going into clay you know I was just thankful someone wanted to look at it, essentially. Um, but because I had the experience in college of, um, of making, of, of of participating in art shows, you know, with the encouragement of my professor, that kind of like set me up for the mindset of like, you can have work that's sellable, but you can also have work. There's three, I feel like there's three ways you can have your artwork. You have your artwork that's for yourself, you have artwork that's sellable, and then you have artwork that's, at least this is for me, like research-based, like I'm putting a lot of time in this, I don't care if someone buys it, if they buy it, that's great. Yeah, and so I definitely, I think, and that's what I was talking about, I think at the very beginning about how I was saying I was an artist and, but I, I do all these different things, like teaching freelance to be able to generate income for myself. I would say I'm an artist, but also kind of like a small business owner. I would still consider myself that. It's just, it's just two different mindsets that I have to put myself in. You know, the business side of me is like, okay, I have a quota that I need to meet at the end of this month. But then the art side of me is like, can we not do that? Can we just experiment? For the whole month, Um, so it's that constant fighting in my head that that I would say is the most difficult, (laughs) and the and I would say the aspect I was not prepared for.
0: (laughs) And as you stated that it's kind of two separate mindsets that you have to put yourself into between the business and the art side. Uh, Just beyond creating and producing like your own work, have you faced any any challenges kind of establishing that selling platform?
3: Yeah, I. I would say, so let's see, so I graduated in 2018, didn't really have a set plan, I did mostly internships and residencies and more internships, Um, but in 2020, um, when my internships and residencies kind of took a hold, I moved to Raleigh with my partner, who is now my husband, set on making work in the kitchen, you know, that kind of thing. But my Mason was like, no, <laughs> because it's very messy. <laughs> I'm not going to do that in the kitchen. So he encouraged me to look around at the space, the space in particular, the Carter building. Um, he actually got my engagement ring from the Carter building, Metamorphous metals right down the, a couple of, uh, doors down. And it was like, there's a couple of empty spaces you should, you know, you should email the building manager. And so I did, and I was like, okay, if he gets back to me within the week, I'll I'll do it. Or I'll at least start researching and looking into it and, and taking it more seriously, the idea more seriously. And Chris Carter got back to me, like, within the day. And I was like, shoot, now I have to really seriously look into this. And so that's what I did. And I really, <laughs> I wouldn't say it was impulsive of a, impulsive of a decision. I ha- because I had experience selling. I ha- had kind of a semi profile on, on social media. I had sold work online, but I definitely wasn't, I definitely feel like I didn't have my name out there. So this, this doing this definitely felt like a jump from communi- You know, doing community studio, internships, residency. So jumping from that kind of nomadic life to settling, you know, quote unquote, settling down in a permanent studio space where I'm renting and I'm paying to have the studio space was definitely nerve wracking, but I was very ambitious. (laughs) and So I, which kind of, you know, bit me in the butt a little later, which I'll, I'll get to, but I applied for a lot of gallery shows. I applied for a lot of gallery shows. And I even, um, did a pre-sale for, you know, kind of raising money to put the studio together. I did a pre-sale that year. I made so many mistakes. One mistake with the pre-sale was I did not set a limit on my pre-sale orders. So I had the, I probably, I had the space for about a month, a month or two. And I realized that I didn't have a set limit on my pre-orders and I, By the time I realized that and shut shut it down, I had, like, 90 orders. So, I was like, well, shoot. So, I had 90 orders, plus I had all these galleries lined up for the next two years. A.K.A. I am just now finishing all of that work. So, that kind of really... That really slowed me down i would say the gallery work specifically i realized that i shouldn't have applied to that many galleries and also accepted that many gallery um, invitations the gallery work i've learned is not sustainable mainly because you know i i bought this website i bought this nice studio space but i was sending everything out so for the past two years everything that i made went out the door, you know, got shipped away. Um, and so I never had any in-store inventory. I never expected this little building to get a lot of traffic, but it surprisingly does. And I'm also right in the front of the building. So I have a lot of people stopping by like, oh, can I buy this piece? I'm like, no, it already has a home. (laughs) So for the past two years, I really didn't feel like I was a part of the Raleigh art community mainly because everything, I wasn't able to participate any, in any markets, any in-person events essentially. Gallery work and not setting a limit on my pre-sales really set me back on selling work for, for the past two years. But this year I've started you know, winding down on all my orders and all of my gallery deadlines and I'm learning how to say no. It's really hard sometimes, but I'm learning how to say no to, um, to things like that. And I participated in my first in-person event at the Fall Arts Market, and that went really well. And so I'm really looking forward to more in-person events and having a more in-person inventory uh, and also selling more on my website.
0: Social media has kind of played a big role in the arts as of late, especially applications like Instagram and TikTok. What role has social media played in your art?
3: Social media played a big role when I was first starting out, particularly Instagram. I met a lot of my friends through Instagram. I've never met them in person, but we have these very, you know, close relationships and we're always kind of supporting each other. And there's, there's this annual clay conference called Nseeka. The last Nseeka I went to was in 2017, I think. That was when I was, I had first, 2017 I think is when I first made my Instagram and I remember meeting three of my online friends at that clay conference I was planning to go to the one in Richmond in 2020 and So many people that I had known or made friends with through Instagram We were really excited to meet each other, but you know, that didn't happen And so this there's an, there's another in coming up and I think the clay I found a lot of friends in the clay community through Instagram um, and so that's probably been, has been the most beneficial. I've gotten um, invites through that aspect. Someone that I constantly supported on Instagram, you know, they could message me and say, hey, can I tag you in this? Like, or I'm gonna share your online sale on Instagram and that kind of thing. So there's like a nice little community of, of friends and groups um, who we haven't even met each other in person, but genuinely support each other. Um, and I think that's really nice. Instagram now, I would say social media in general now, um, particularly because I went through that two year period where I wasn't able to really make a lot of, you know, make a lot of work for myself or like in-store inventory, um, social media just got really anxiety inducing, um, because I was seeing these folks that are making a lot of posts and doing a lot of really cool, cool things. And I was like... <laughs> I still have all these orders I need to get through. <laughs> and so I would say my my social media has been pretty stagnant for the past two years, but this this year I've I've gotten a lot better about posting again. And you know, Instagram, once you stop posting for like a week it kicks you kicks you to the nether world. <laughs> so that's always um that's always that's always really frustrating. But I would definitely say Instagram helps out a lot or helped out a lot when I was first starting out because you're able to make connections and almost network virtually um, and that kind of thing.
0: I guess what have been some favorite moments that you've had throughout your career that just has established that passion or love for like art and this lifestyle as a whole?
3: I would definitely say teaching. Teaching because I have... I feel like I have a lot of skills to share. (laughs) And then, um, and then when I'm able, and also I'm really bad with, generally really bad with words and generally just really bad about public speaking, but when I'm teaching and when I have that one student who gets it and (laughs) me explaining to them a process and they get it, there's a lot of like satisfaction through that and I'm like, Oh wow, I'm actually, I'm, actively inspiring someone to like try this out or like to experiment or to take this risk. So that's like, that's been really, you know, start when I've started teaching in person, that was really interesting to like see people's reaction to like my teaching style. Another thing is like the general community, the the clay and the ceramics field kind of generates. It's definitely interesting. I would say the, the ceramic kind of field has been mostly very white <laughs> and male, um, for as long as, you know, for as long as forever, I would say just, but up until recently, I think it was that 2017, that 2017 NSEKA conference that I went to was when the Color Network was founded. The Color Network is, a uh, uh, nonprofit, well, it started off as just a group, but now it's a nonprofit of um, people of color who are generating support, grants, opportunities, and a general community for other people of color in the ceramic in the ceramic world. Um, and so I think that's that's really amazing because you know ceramics really did come from people of color when you think about the history of it. Um, and I feel like that's something that folks, you know, need to, you know, they need to find that again and, you know, like how I was able to find my own history through clay. I hope that I can meet other people of color and help them find their own history or, you know, connect with their own history (laughs) um, through clay. And that's something I'm really excited about is reaching other people of color, um, ceramics.
0: I always like to kind of ask this question because there's a lot of college-based listeners but if there's any artists that are in like listening right now and they want to pursue a career like in their own personal craft or just in the arts in general do you have any tips for them?
3: Yeah I would say be annoying because that's how I was. I um, when I first started out I wanted to know everything there was possible. I wanted to know everything so I would you know be annoying. I, essentially, I I went to school at Western Carolina, so I was really close to Asheville. I remember I think it was yeah, when I took my first ceramic class uh spring break is when I um out to the river arts district and visited every single pottery studio and asked them a billion questions like to each person who allowed me to be in their studio and to ask that many questions and um i basically did that like my whole like when i was first starting out um it was also a good way for me to um to open up because i was generally very awkward And so I was like, these people are barely going to remember me, you know, and the ceramic thing might not even work out. So I can ask questions. (laughs) So, um, like when I went to NSECA or like the first ceramic conference when I was in college, I was annoying. Essentially, I was asking questions all over the place. I was like, Oh, how do you do like, Oh, how'd you get into this? Oh, what do you think about this? Also, my professor really encouraged it too. Although she didn't call it being annoying. She called it networking. Um, but she was like, just, just email them. What are they going to say? They're not going to respond. That's fine. <laughs> so emailing, I, I remember I sent after that first NSEKA that I went to in 2017, I remember listening to the keynote. I think it was not the keynote speaker, but one of the emerging artists. It's like an award given out at that, um, conference. Her name was Christina and she was a Mexican-American artist and she was one of the speakers and I remember being so touched by her work and like so touched by like her message and like I I could really relate to her experience my professor was like email her I was like email her and so I did I emailed her and she got back to me and I think I was so like astounded that she got back to me, that I never responded back, and I felt so bad. But yeah, just be, just, just be inquisitive. Just ask a lot of questions. I don't know, email me, like, email, generally potters, I feel like the potters that I've encountered are very giving with their knowledge, and that's something I strive to also be, very giving with my knowledge. I don't want to essentially, you know, it's not mine to to hide away like ceramic processes have been around for centuries it's just you know accessing that knowledge can be a little tedious
0: great and uh given wknc's tie with eye on the triangle as a whole uh, one of my favorite questions to conclude with is what is your favorite music to work with or what music do you have playing in your studio you said modest mouse earlier but is there any more like artists that you like
3: I would say, very recently, I've gotten really into Takanaka's work. Um, are, you, uh, any, are you familiar?
0: I'm personally not familiar. Oh, <laughs> yeah. No.
3: Um, the, I think the album that I found was... Um, it's actually an album he, um, he created for a children's book. It's called the... Oh God, what is it called? The Rainbow Goblins, a children's book about rain um, goblins who eat rainbows, and how this community of animals who lived in this rainbow forest fought off the goblins, and it, it was a children's book explaining why the rainbows never touch the ground anymore, because, because of the goblins. Anyway, um, but yeah, he, he, um, yeah, he made a score for that children's book completely random, um, but I guess that was a thing you did in, like, the 60s, because there wasn't much TV or, um, that kind of thing, (laughs) Mm -hmm. so you would make a whole vinyl, um, for a children's, children's book, but it's just, like, amazing, it's very funky, very, um, lots of really good riffs, but yeah, yeah, like, a lot of funk, a lot of instrumentals i'm recent i'm listening to recently jazzy instrumentals
0: (laughs) certainly i feel like that kind of like represents your work a little bit because i would say your like illustrations can be i guess described as funky so i think that's really cool that the music kind of ties into it a little bit and if somebody wanted to like find you what platforms or uh social media handles would you or do you have
3: um so i I tried to keep it all consistent <laughs> uh casa studios casas for um instagram is casas dot studios but generally you can if you go there you can find everything um, or just generally my website is laura caroline dot
1: com
0: that is all for this week's episode of eye on the triangle I want to thank Patrick and Laura for sitting down and interviewing with us. I hope everyone has a lovely rest of their week. Music for today's episode was Tupelo Honey by Chris Hagen, licensed under the YouTube audio library.